I'm not sure just how many folks that were here this morning were here on New Year's Day. On New Year's Day, I gave a few little stories, well, not stories, but I used a few parables to introduce what God had really burdened on my heart for this coming year. And there's one word that that has been at the sum of all that, and that is the word impact. And you will probably get sick of me using that word, and that's okay. I might get sick of me using that word too. But that is the word that has been on my heart, and and I used two um, parables to show that on New Year's Day, speaking about the gifts that we have and how God wants us not to always sit in a plate, safe place, but to be willing to take gambles and to take risks for him because the gifts and the talents that he's given us, he, see, he desires us to use to, to multiply and bring glory to his name. That word impact for me sums up a lot of that and, and it sums up the, the, the teaching series that's going to take place both in the morning as we look for the book of Matthew. Impact is not merely about what we can do in the town. Impact is about us being impacted by God as well and coming face to face with Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to do in the mornings. In the mornings, we're going to look for the book of Matthew and we're going to encounter the Jesus Christ. And I pray we're going to encounter Jesus Christ in some powerful ways as we look at what he did, how he lived, what he said. There's some amazing things within all of that. And we're going to look through the, the book of Matthew, especially we are going to be spending a good bit of time in the Sermon on the Mount as well, that famous block of Jesus' teaching. We're going to spend a good bit of time looking through that together. And in the evenings, as of tonight, we're going to start looking through the book of Daniel as well. The book of Daniel, as I'm very quickly learning, is a remarkable book which draws so many parallels between what he was experiencing and actually the Christian position as a follower of Jesus Christ in a world that doesn't recognize him. So we're going to begin looking through that tonight as well. So if you want to, please come along for that because it's certainly going to be an interesting series as we look through Daniel. But in the midst of all of this, there is this desire that as we go through this year that we will become increasingly aware of what our gifts are, but also increasingly comfortable to take the opportunities to use them. And many of us are already doing that, using our gifts in a variety of different ways. But maybe for some of us there are gifts that we haven't seen, that we haven't recognized in our lives. We can't use it if we can't see it. It's kind of like me sometimes when there's a mess. I can't clean it because I can't see it. My brain filters it out. Honest. But there are gifts that we have. Gifts that God has given us. That others probably see already. Maybe we don't ourselves. And things that God will have planned in advance for us to do in this coming year. So that word impact sums that up. And it sums up, I think, that as Christians we should feel some sense of excitement as to being disciples of Jesus because we never quite know what he's going to ask us to do, what he has set in motion and when he might call us out of the boat and to take a step of faith. And that can be a scary thing to do. And anyone that has done it will know know that that's the case and we will have all done it in a variety of different ways. 
But if there's one thing I've learned as a Christian, it's that God never stops calling us. He never stops calling us to go deeper because then our roots get deeper as well. There is never a point where I believe we have reached the deep end and we can go no further. God keeps calling us. He keeps challenging us. He keeps developing us. He keeps growing us. He keeps molding us. And there are always things that he's going to ask us to do where we think, ah, really? But he has plans for us this year. Plans not just to impact our hearts and our minds, but as he does that, he will use us to impact those around us as well. So I just wanted to take a wee bit of time just to introduce that, that teaching vision that's going to run throughout the year as we look through Matthew and as we look through Daniel and as we do different things. And yeah, so please take hold of that. And if you have any thoughts or ideas, please come and share them with me as well. This morning we, we're going to be looking through the book of, sorry, we're going to look through Matthew chapter 1 and we're going to come to that reading just now. So if you want to read along, please open your book, to uh, your Bible, sorry, to Matthew chapter 1 and we'll read along with this. Book of Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thank you for that, Malcolm. A nice easy reading, as I'm sure you would all agree. But very well done, Malcolm. I was so relieved when Malcolm very kindly offered to do that reading for me. And very eagerly accepted that he would do so. We begin the Gospels. And I do wonder, as we begin this, this series in Matthew, I want, us to encourage, I want to encourage us to have in our hearts an openness to God. That we, as his servants, are, and as his children, have this invitation to him that we are open. Open to what he is going to say to us. Open to what he might call us to do. Open to who he wants us to be. And our desire is for God to use us and to glorify himself through us. It is my strong prayer and my belief that we go through this book of Matthew to encounter Jesus to encounter him anew, to be challenged by him, to be reminded that he is our Lord and our our Savior and to learn from his life, his teaching, and his mission. We come to Matthew, perhaps looking for the gospel to become good news to us once more. Perhaps it isn't in that place in our life. To be reminded that there is hope in life and that God... It's a God of faithfulness and of love. That and more will come out in the coming weeks as we explore this book together. The culmin- and the, this week we're going to be looking and seeing that this is a culmination of what happens in Matthew chapter 1 of thousands and thousands of years of God's presence and work in the world as Jesus Christ enters into it. When I started writing uh, this sermon, one of the things I was going to call this, this sermon was the divine interruption as Jesus came into the world. But the more and more I researched it, the more and more I realized that this wasn't a divine interruption at all. This was the result of God's work throughout, throughout his peoples for generations and generations and generations. And this is the, the, the climax, the culmination of all of that. As Jesus Christ comes into the world, it isn't an interruption. It's the fulfillment of all that had been promised in the Old Testament. That is what is happening as Matthew sets out his stall in the first chapter of this gospel. This is no sudden event. This is God who has been moving things into place for a long time. It's not the divine interruption that I wanted to call it. I thought that was a catchy little title, but it's not right. It's a divine fulfillment. That's what Matthew chapter 1 is telling us. God's promises come into pass in his son and in his son's kingdom. It's a proclamation to the world and to us that God is here. Emmanuel has come. That is what this first chapter is telling us. And as you can see this week, there's a PowerPoint. 
I've done a PowerPoint, and now the big challenge for me is to remember to press the button. And I need to remember to press the button because in this notes, there are pictures. Yeah, I've got pictures and everything. And if I forget one of the pictures, the points don't make sense after that point. So I need to remember to press the button. So let's pray that I do. Here we go. So the first part is I want to just look back into these verses and to see what we can take from that. And the first thing I actually want us to, to grasp as, as, we, as we look into Matthew is to realize that Matthew is a very Jewish book. It's, a very, it's, it's the very Jewish gospel. This is a book that was written for Jewish Christians. That was Matthew's target audience when he wrote this book. And because of that, there are many different assumptions that he makes when it comes to what people will understand. He assumes that people know Jewish practices and he assumes that people will understand certain Jewish phrases and concepts that he's using. Every single gospel is unique and they're all written under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But those that were writing them wrote them to a target audience. And Matthew's target audience was the Jewish Christians. And it is a heavy gospel. It's a heavy gospel because of that, especially for people that don't have a Jewish cultural background. Some have even led, have asked the question, well, why is this gospel first? Because it's so heavy. Why not have Mark first? After all, Mark gets straight into it. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the king who has come. That's who, Ma- that's who Mark starts. Not Matthew. He starts with a genealogy. That's how he starts this gospel. But the understanding has to be different because this is a book that was written so that Jewish readers would understand who, Jewish, who Jesus is. Sorry. And as we go through this chapter, you will see how he is doing what he's doing and why he's doing what he's doing and why he's writing it in the way in which he is. Because one of Matthew's key things is to link together Jesus and the Old Testament promises. To tell the Jewish readers that in this person, in Jesus Christ, all these promises that God has given to his people in the Old Testament are now fulfilled. This new age is coming and it has arrived in in Jesus Christ. That is his burning thing. And he also accepts as he goes through the book that things have changed. And nationality no longer defines you as God's people. But instead, it is your response to Jesus Christ. For Matthew, that would have been a hard thing to come to terms with. But he does it nonetheless. And the first thing he gives us is the genealogy. Brilliantly read by Malcolm. Name after name after name after name. That I'm sure you'd be terrified if I decided, let's read through it again. Lots of different names. And we could look at a genealogy and we could think, what's the big deal? 17 verses of offspring is what we're reading. And we could wonder why. I mean, for us nowadays, a genealogy is one of these things where you sign up to Ancestry.com or something like that. And you're doing it because you hope you're either distantly related to the royal family or somebody famous. That's basically why we're doing it. And then if you are doesn't related to these people, you can tell the press or you can get on that show that's on one of these TV channels that covers all this stuff. 
But back then, genealogies were something far more substantial and far more important. And they serve serve a key purpose in what Matthew is trying to do here. We we can look at this and we can think, oh, that's, that's not very interesting. And most of the time, by the time we've got past the first 14 names, uh, sets of names, we've kind of lost a bit of interest. We don't really understand what is going on to the same degree as others would. And we would probably think actually having something like Mark does, where you fire right into it, is a bit more interesting to read. But that's not how a Jewish person would interpret this. And it's not what they would get from this. This genealogy is very carefully written. It's very carefully structured to communicate some key things about who Jesus is. We look at it and we see a list of names. And it is a list of names. But when Jewish people looked at it, they would see much more than that in these list of names. And I want to tell you some of these things that they would see in that. And what Matthew is trying to do as as he does is, first and most importantly, establishes Jesus in the Old Testament line. He is creating a continuality between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that is very important for Matthew, and it's very important for his readers as well, that Jesus is linked physically with Israel. And the way it's structured, and the way it's set out, and it's expressed explicitly in verse 17, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation were 14, and from the deportation to Babylon. Sorry, from the deportation to Christ were 14. These numbers indicate that the time of waiting has come to an end. That's what they would communicate to a Jewish reader because of the numbers and the symbols. The time of waiting has come to an end and that the time of fulfillment has now arrived. That's what Matthew is telling them at this point. And he makes it explicit when he says from Babylon to the Christ. This waiting is over. The time of fulfillment has arrived. And equally as important, he stakes his line through the royal line, not just of David, but of Judah. Stating the claim that this person, this Jesus, has a royal claim to the kingship. And these are the kind of things that Matthew is telling his readers as they begin this gospel. Not merely a list of names, but through that list and through that narrative, he is communicating to these people that time of waiting is over. Something new has happened. The time of fulfillment has arrived. The Christ is coming. And from that, he switches To Joseph, who we could say is a man who begins rather bewildered. Matthew does something quite interesting. Normally you would expect he would switch to Mary. After all, Mary is more the important one. She's actually the one pregnant with God's son. Joseph, he's married to Mary. But, well, what's his status? But Matthew doesn't do that. He switches to Joseph and he tells this part of the story, this part of the narrative through Joseph's perspective. And not Mary's, as we see done elsewhere. He focuses in on him. And he explains that Joseph is engaged to Mary. Being engaged back then meant something somewhat different to what it means. Nowadays, if you're engaged, it doesn't 
It means something, but it doesn't mean a massive amount. It's quite easy to break off an engagement. It creates some gossip for other people, sure. But, it, but there's no legal consequences. There's no actual difficulty to it. The biggest difficulty is, whether the, who, keep, is who keeps a ring. That's basically the biggest debate. But it wasn't like that back then. Back then, engagement was, was legal. It generally happened about a year before the wedding would happen. And the only way out of an engagement was either by death or by divorce. The marriage was set in stone. All that was going to happen. So when Joseph finds himself in the situation that Mary is pregnant by, and he tells us the Holy Spirit, naturally, Joseph's first inclination wouldn't be to believe that. If your spouse comes up and says, or your fiancé comes up and says that she's pregnant, um, your first instance isn't going to be, if, just, if they say it's God, oh, okay, that's fine. You're going to be pretty skeptical about that. And you'd probably respond the exact same way as Joseph and think, okay, this, this has run its course. Joseph doesn't want to humiliate Mary. He doesn't want to put her to shame. The situation he finds himself is one where his way out would have been to have her publicly charged with adultery. That would have been his way out in this situation. But he's reluctant to do that. And after this rather eventful sleep that he has, um, so, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and explains to him that he doesn't need to fear and he can take Mary as his wife. She is, in fact, pregnant with Jesus. And he's given instruction. Call him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That's what's revealed to Joseph. And at that point, he can go forward in obedience with that as well. And all of this sets in motion this. There is clarity. The king is coming. That is what Matthew is really keen to communicate to people. And we're told why Jesus is coming now as well. Jesus is coming to save people from their sins. That's what he's coming to do. Matthew and his desire to link everything from the Old Testament into the New and to create that bridge and that continuation, one of the mechanisms he uses is what all the textbooks, this has got a fancy name. It's called Fulfillment Proclamations. And I couldn't say that many times quickly. And what that basically means is exactly what you see in verse 22. This took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. A fulfillment proclamation. He's using when the events that are happening in his presence at that time. And he's linking it to prophecy in the Old Testament here. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew stresses the virgin conception, which reinforces that this is the Son of God. There are supernatural origins here as well. This isn't just some random pregnancy. This child is from Mary, but it's also from God through the Holy Spirit as well. In other words, he closes chapter 1 highlighting that Jesus is the Son of God. He is here with that royal claim to the line of Judah to save people from their sins and that he is Emmanuel, God with his people. The Old Testament promises are coming to fulfillment. 
the time of preparation and waiting is over. Here comes the fulfillment. Emmanuel, God with his people. I saw this on Facebook and quite liked it. I don't know if everyone will get the joke. The first, there are three points I want to just look at in application to this. And the first of these being circumstance. And, and I, I chose this. I love the way the earth rotates. It really makes my day. The world just keeps going and going and going. No matter what, the world continues. We know there was much going on before we were here and there will be much that goes on after we are gone. This picture illustrates the reality of that. The world keeps spinning. And barring Jesus' return and whatever he establishes at that point, this world will continue on as it does at the moment. I wonder, have we ever had that feeling, stop the world, I want to get off? Has anyone ever had that feeling before? I'm getting a few nods. That feeling that things just keep on going and it can almost be a feeling of being out of control. Things can get overwhelming. Worries, they can get overpowering. Stress can build up to the point where we want to bang our heads off the wall. It can feel suffocating. It can feel like we're just being pressured in on ourselves. And that we would just love the world to stop so we could hop off for a little while and escape some of these difficulties for a period of time. And in times like those, we can wonder, well, where's God in this? I'm praying and nothing's happening. I'm reading the Bible and I'm getting nothing from it. I'm doing my quiet times and what feels quiet is God. Where is he in the midst of all of my strifes and my difficulties? Words that you would hear, excuse me, words that you would also hear some of the psalmists using as well. Looking for his presence, looking for his hands, and even doubting or wondering if he is there. There are times when things can, yep, see, there we go, I forgot to press the button. There are times when things can feel out of control. When we wonder what's going on and where we can find is our rock and as our strength. And we can struggle to feel comfort in, in the world that we find ourselves in as well. If you even look much at the news and at the headlines that we get these days, you, you struggle to find much positive. You do. It's really difficult. We, we find most of our media is made up of either bad news or generally attacking people for one reason or another. And it can be difficult in this world to find hope, to find certainty, to find some sort of feeling that someone or something is in control of it all. And I think for the Christian, when, when things like this happen, it, it can be, it's a sense of disorientation. Disorientation because of the different things and events that are happening in our lives and us not knowing quite what weighs up and what weighs down. But isn't it remarkable that the genealogy can serve as a reorientation and a reminder and a refocusing. Because what the genealogy reminds us is that God is at work 
always. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, mafiolists. All of these different characters. Some of these characters are great. We could call them goodies. Others, well, they're not so great. They're a bit shady. And maybe we would call them baddies because their life was certainly not up to much. There are ragamuffins. There are people that we would see as examples. There are generations where it's going well. And there are generations where it's not going well. Generations where things are not going well, such as when they go into exile into Babylon. It is going wrong, very wrong at those times. Very wrong at those times. In fact, it's interesting, as I look through the genealogy, and last night as I was doing some finishing touches on things, I, w- I noticed a bit about the de- deportation to Babylon. And they talk about Jeconiah, and I was thinking, but it wasn't him at that moment. In fact, tonight we're looking at a king who failed so, failed so much that he's not even listed by Matthew. We're looking at the king Jehoiakim. He is the king that is involved in the whole deportation to Babylon, but he's not listed here because this guy was not one that people had much time for. We see all of these things flowing through the lives of these people. A lot of them we can find the stories of in the Old Testament. Times of despair and exile, times of joy and faithfulness. Yet what the genealogy shows us in the midst of all of that, God is still at work. Working through his purposes, working through his promises. Waving things through life. And in this case, paving things for the way for Jesus. God is ever present. And that same truth remains today. When Jesus came and accomplished all that he did, God didn't say, okay, great job done. It's time to pack off. We can go for a holiday now. He remains present. He remains active in the lives of his people. He remains active in the path and shape of the world as well. So, he is present in our lives. Life can be harsh, and at times it can be great. We all experience highs, and we'll all have to journey through the lows as well. But God is unchanging. And he is faithful from generation to generation. And we can grasp hold of that. Life's going to serve up all different circumstances to us at lots of different times. But one thing we can always hold to and we're reminded of in this genealogy is that God is faithful. And is always at work in his people and in his world. And there is hope as well. There's hope in these verses, hope in abundance. Everyone is seeking hope. I did a little thing on Google last night. I was looking around for hope and definitions, and I saw some, some of the most bleak ones actually were from Christians, which was quite surprising. It's also quite surprising how if you put hope into Google images, such as what I did to get that little picture, um, it just fills with Christian stuff as well. Christianity and hope are linked on Google Images. Isn't that great? Or I thought it was anyway. 
everyone, I think, is seeking hope. Some argued that everyone is hopeless. There is no hope. There is no nothing. I don't believe that. I think human beings, by our nature, seek for hope. And that we are generally hopeful. Maybe not in the right things, but I do believe humanity is looking and is using hope. We have many hopes. The world goes on reaching and trying to change things, to improve. Sometimes hope drives amazing good. Other times it causes gambles. And we see evidence of things like that today. People are looking for hope and they no longer trust the systems that are in place to deliver it. So they take gambles and put their hope elsewhere and try something different instead. Was it a sensible thing or not? Well, time will only tell with that question. Hope drives people, and I do believe we fundamentally need hope. I think that when a human being loses hope, all hope, the level of despair that sets in is entirely crippling. It is part of what we need, and it's one of the three things that Corinthians names as most important, faith, hope, and love. It makes it onto that list. Hope is vitally important. The world, the world, sorry, I don't know what I was trying to say there. The world continues reaching and trying. It, and, and I think that shows that there is a recognition that all isn't as it should be. We wouldn't need hope to try if things were all as they should be. An awareness that something is out of balance, that something needs corrected, that, to use the term of the matrix, there is a flaw in the system. I still strongly recommend everyone watches that film. And we know what that flaw is. That flaw is sin. Sin. And it's in every system. It's in us. It's in the structures that we create. It's everywhere. The world can see it, but it might not use the same name, and it might not even accept what we say about it either. But it recognizes there's an issue. What Matthew tells us is that the greatest hope has dawned. The greatest hope has dawned. And that is Jesus Christ. He is that hope. The one sent by God. The greatest hope has dawned. And because of the gospel, and gospel means good news, there is always hope. Why did Jesus come? He came to save people from their sins, Matthew tells us. What is the flaw in the system it is sin. And Christianity alone has that gospel, that good news that we can share with the world that actually there is a solution. There is a way to break free from the stuff and to live a life that is completely different. To live a life in harmony with the God that you were created to walk in step with. We have that hope that we can share with the world. And it's a hope that the world needs to hear. This hope has come. That time of preparation and waiting is over. It ended 2,000 years ago. The time of fulfillment is what we live in now. That God is here, present, and that Jesus Christ offers up to the world that hope that he can save people from their sins. And that is a hope that we need to share. The gospel, the good news, 
And I wonder, does it still warm our hearts? I touched on that earlier. Jesus' freedom from our sin, all of it is gone. We're cleansed as white as snow, drawn into that relationship with God. Or does it make us feel, or does it, does it make us smile? Or is it completely familiar now? Has it became kind of like the living room curtains or the wallpaper on our walls? Stick with me on this one. The illustration does work, I promise. You know, when you first, like for instance, let's go over wallpaper. When you first put your wallpaper up and you do all the matching and you spend sometimes as long as eight or nine hours on it. And if you're like me, there's probably a few arguments that happen along the way as well. And lots of bits of paper that are lost too. But that to me is necessary. But you spend ages doing it. And then you get it all done and you get it matched. The matching is a nightmare and it takes a while. And you get it all lined up nicely. You manage to cut around the plug sockets. And when you look at it at the end, you think, brilliant. This looks great. And if you are, well, a general male, you will want to show people this as well. Look, look at this as well, people. I only took a couple of hours, honest. But you will want to show people. When you walk into the living room, you'll see it and you think, oh, that's great. I'm really impressed. I'm glad they did that. really livens up the room and creates an atmosphere. But what about three months later? Not that bothered. The kids have crayons. It doesn't matter anymore. Maybe it'll wipe. And it doesn't strike us when we go in the room anymore. It's just there. It's doing its function. It's making the wall look nice. But it doesn't hurt us anymore. It's familiar. We've moved on to the next thing. The gospel should never become like that. It should never be something that becomes familiar and just sits there. It should always be something that's striking us anew with hope, with excitement, with passion, with fire. Because that gospel reminds us that we are drawn back into relationship with God and can walk and live with him. And for us to share that gospel with the world, it actually needs to do these things for us. If somebody comes up to you and says, I've got this good news, I want to share it with you. Ah, yeah, it's about this guy, Jesus, you've probably heard of him. Did you know that he came and all that stuff you've messed up with and all these mistakes you've made, he he can sort all that out for you. Oh, by the way, have you seen the latest thing on Facebook? That's pretty interesting, isn't it? We would listen. But if it invigorates us, and if we have passion and we are fire because we know our gods, people are more likely to listen because they see, well, wait a minute, this is something that makes a difference to them, it matters to them. What are they on about? They might not agree with us at the end, but they'll listen. And they'll converse about it. Is the gospel the wallpaper? Or is it the fire? We all alone know the answers to that. And there is fulfillment as well. And this is the last thing before we share communion together. Every king needs a kingdom. Jesus has a kingdom. And Matthew is very keen to stress and to paint Jesus as this king who is coming. That time of waiting is over and Israel had been waiting for a king. He is that king. The promises are fulfilled and that this is the nature of the new kingdom. God with his people, Emmanuel. 
Jesus isn't just the king on the throne. He's the king with his people. He isn't the king that sits apart. He's the king in the midst of his people, who walks with his people, who picks his people up, who loves his people, who dusts his people off, who takes them forward, who gifts them, who carries them. That's the kind of king Jesus is. He is Emmanuel, God with his people. This is the kingdom of which we are part of. And it's different to anything of this world. Jesus told us that. He says his kingdom is not of this world. And if it was, the response of people would be different. This is the heavenly kingdom. The heavenly kingdom that is set up home on earth. It breaches every border. Doesn't respect any nationality. Goes to every language, every tribe, every tongue. It has no interest in class. It has no interest in wealth or status. It goes to everyone. That invitation is to everyone. And as we learn, and we will learn as we go through Matthew, it has very different principles and ethics to many, in fact, every kingdom of this world. A kingdom in which we, as its citizens, are called to live in a unique way. It is God with his people beyond everything else. This is what Christianity is, the relationship between humanity and God and God and humanity. Where the king is with his people. He loves his people. And he walks with his people. This is the kingdom that we are part of. And this is what Matthew is communicating to these readers as he begins this book. And what it tells us and what it would tell them is there is hope in every circumstance because we know that the king has come. So my question to us all is what difference is that king and his gospel making in our lives at this time? That it doesn't become the wallpaper, but it's always the fire. And as it is that, that we share it with others. This is the hope of the world because the greatest need of the world is freedom from sin. We have that message. We have that message and we're entrusted with it to share it with the world and with those around us. The one caution I would say is if that message has become stale for us, we won't be able to make that message fire for others. So where is that gospel and its power in our lives? Matthew makes it plain. The king has come, the time of waiting is over, the time of promise and fulfillment has arrived. Jesus has come and he's saving people from their sins and he's establishing his kingdom. We remember that as well as we share communion together, that he and he alone has saved us from our sins.